from a seven-story window Throwing parties in a ten-by-seven cell It's astounding the legs I'll go To convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help Yeah, I am waving while I drown Don't bother swimming out to save me I will only drag you down I'll try to use your body as a life raft Cause if there's room enough for one there I sail the good ship you into the sunset Sipping on savory waters And my liver turns blue That's a really bad time for the rainbow wheel. Uh, no rainbow wheel right now. I can't use a rainbow wheel. All right. Time to uh, put down the pens, put down the pencils, step away from the keyboard and settle in for this week's episode of the writer's block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Don and Sally Wright for giving birth to me because without them, none of this would be possible. Also, allow me to uh, thank Muddied Waters Media for allowing me to do this show, which is ironic because it's mine. And uh, allow me to thank Grassroots Kava House for the delicious and wonderful kava I drink on this and every single episode of the Writer's Block. To all of the above, Bula Vanaka. Also, opening and closing music is by the Narcissist Cookbook, a great gentleman named Matt from England that I was lucky enough to befriend. And uh, you should go and check out everything he has on the iTunes and the Spotify. Uh, And he also has a completely legal reading of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on YouTube that you should go and check out. And I believe he has a new album coming out this year. So you should check out all of that. Now, my guest today is a somebody who truly should need absolutely no introduction whatsoever. She is the former host of Speaking Freely and the host of Postcards from Somalia, as well as the host of the Sherry Voluntary Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sherry Voluntary. What is going on, Sherry? How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. No, I, I am super excited to have you on the show. 
Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, we um, we were lucky enough to meet because a couple of weeks ago I had uh, Adrian Cardone. Cardin, Cardone, Cardin, Cardin, Cardin. Cardin. Mm-hmm. I had Adrian Cardin on the show, and uh, she was singing all of the high praises to you, and uh, she she was just a huge fan, which is awesome. And she uh, was like, "Oh yeah, you should totally have her on your show sometime." And I was like, "Great, I will definitely have her on my show sometime." <laughs> cool. A couple of weeks later, you're here. Thank you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I'm. Interested to talk about what we're talking about tonight. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Whatever that is. I, whatever it is. Whatever we happen to come <laughs> across. Because um, I do very little preparation for this show. Um, <laughs> so I know that you are an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Um, so how is it that you got to be, before we get into the other things that we kind of like briefly touched on, um, how is it that you became an anarchist? Uh, well... I, I guess the the shorter version of it is that um, I became a libertarian uh, from listening to a ra- well, I thought I was a libertarian. Let's say that from right. listening to a radio show out of Atlanta called um, the Neil Bortz Radio Show, and he was on for many years down there. And um, he he was a libertarian, more like a big L libertarian. Uh, he used to do a bunch of. I, I don't know if it was called Freedom Fest or it was something they did together with Sean Hannity. Okay. So that tells you what kind of. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, got but, it. No, know that libertarian. Yeah. He was a former lawyer and um, he actually wrote the, do you remember the fair tax book? Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote that. So that's the, that's the guy from that radio show. Okay. And uh, what, what really got me interested that, was. That's not um, Eric Erickson, is it? No. no. Um, Neil Bortz. Neil Bortz. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, he, uh, so he, he would talk about eminent domain a lot. Right. And I had, I'd never heard of eminent domain. I I was surprised that I'd never heard of it. And, and it really shocked me that our government could do that. And I was a Republican. I mean, I was, I was really neo-Connie, right? I was, <laughs> I should make a sock account called neo-Connie, but, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I was a big neocon, but I mean, I always had this love for freedom and um, the principles of freedom as I saw them at the time. And I really thought the Republican Party was leaving me because I was a Republican. And uh, with George W. Bush and things like that, even though I liked him, I the last time I voted was voting for him. Um, and, you know, I... I realized that he wasn't a conservative. Like, I'm like, that guy's not a conservative. Right. Um, but it was close enough. Like, I, I liked him. So, you know, and we had to suspend free market principles, save the free market, all those things. Right? I, was, I, was just about to do, I was just about to make that quote of, <laughs> the in, mission or, in was order accomplished to save the free market, yeah. In order to save the free market, we had to suspend free market principles. Like, yeah, what? that's one of that my makes, favorite. That makes no Bruce sense, George. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so th- there was all that. And so I was already sort of leaving Republicanism, but I didn't really know what I was. So I started listening to old boards. I thought, oh, I'm a libertarian. I get this. I'm, I'm, you know, pretty much socially liberal. I, I think people should be able to be left alone. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely financial or fiscally conservative. So, you know, I thought libertarianism was the centrist sort of position between the two, the best of both worlds. 
And um, later, years later, I realized I was wrong. Started reading more Ayn Rand. And um, then uh, um, Jason Lewis is a radio show guy out of Minneapolis. Okay. And um, Tom Woods used to fill in for him. Oh, And okay. that is, yeah. Right. So that was really where my... Um, transformation to a real libertarian and a real anarchist really sped up <laughs> listening to Tom Woods. So that's, that's how I became an anarchist gotcha. in the short version. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I too was, uh, I too was a neocon and which not happy about it. You know, I, when the Iraq yeah. war started, I was like, hoorah. And uh, that now I'm like, Oh God. That was me at one point in my life. Um, but, you know, much like uh, the late Walter Jones, I I have admitted I was wrong in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was a neocon, and then I kind of found the Libertarian Party, and I was like, this sounds a lot more like me. And I know that uh, when we were talking the other day, I told you that I'm not, like, I'm, I'm leaning, I'm getting, like, Spike, who is my co-host on Muddy Waters of Freedom, he is just pulling me with all of his might toward anarchy, anarchism, anarchy. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I see your point there, but, and he's always got an answer that I can accept. And I'm like, all right, but what about, okay, got it. So like, I'm like, I still <laughs> consider myself like a minarchist. Uh, I still consider myself right. like a minarchist, but at the same time, I'm like, Okay, but yeah, that, this makes no sense either. So, like, he's getting me there step by step by step, and not in an obnoxious I think, way. I think it's interesting when you, it's it's you're probably already there. It's just giving up the idea of the safety of government because we've been taught all our lives that the government takes care of us, right? And the government um, is provide safety nets for poor people and keeps, you know, the Mongolian horde at bay and all those things, which honestly just isn't true. And the more you see it, the more you go, wow, I can let go of this. But I think also a lot of people get scared because they don't re realize that with anarchy, especially libertarian anarchism, it's not lawlessness, right? There's, there's common law, there's contract law. So that's one issue. And then it doesn't mean there will be no governance. Right. So just because there's not a, a state, um, which our government is rolled up into that in that violent and coercive state, that governance of, say, a city, which would be encompassed in the subsidiarity, which would be small competing governances, um, then I think a lot of people can accept that a little easier because really that's, that's all it is about is about bottom up governance, starting with the individual and then individuals can organize together into municipalities that would cover sewage issues and roads and things like that. So, you know, you would, we'd probably have zones where there is no government um, and you'd have certainly places where there is governance. So. I, and so what I what is actually about to say is like, is that um, the way that I kind of see it is if a group of people like, okay, so the city that I live in, uh, which isn't St. Pete, but we'll call it St. Pete. So if the people of St. <laughs> Pete were like, hey, um, we need, you know, we should have some sort of board 
that handles all of this stuff. And then like, essentially they're just setting up their own government, but they would be voluntarily doing it. It's not like they're being forced into it. And that's kind of where more of where I see my minarchism, which some people may say is anarchism, but like if other areas were other areas like Ocala, Florida, uh, decided that they did not want any government whatsoever, any board looking over them, then they wouldn't have one. And right. I would be okay with either. Yeah, and it's it's a matter of really the acceptance in society that it's not okay to force people to do things just because you want them. So if you, you want to organize with your neighborhood to, say, put in a new sewage system, but there are people who don't want to, well, you can't force them. So that would be the difference in a governance, a libertarian governance, than a a government, a state that would, I mean, states are usually generally much bigger um, and centralized, but these would be non-centralized. And even if you did have some governments where, you know, because they could make a, you know, law, we don't want, you know, speeding and the speed limit's going to be 55 or whatever. They could do that, but you don't have to go there. You don't have to live there. There's plenty of places. So right now we don't have any competition of governments. Um, You have some of that within states, but the federal government has become such an overbearing taskmaster um, on the states that they really can't do the things that might represent their citizens of that state a little better. But, you know, I remember years ago, uh, Louisiana tried to lower the drinking age and, this was, this was said, a Reagan era, right? I, I think so. I think so. Um, but the Fed said, nope, can't do it. We're going to take all your money for highways if you do that. Right. So it's the states have become reliant on federal government money, um, which they have no money. It's all stolen from us. So it, it's a system that perpetuates itself. <laughs> right. I was actually, I was talking to somebody, um, I guess this was a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it was a couple of months ago now, but I was saying that exact thing, and he looked at me, and he, this federal government can't take the money for highways. I said, yes, they can. They yeah, do it they all do the it time. All the time. And he goes, <laughs> oh, because of the airplane emergency th- laws. And I said, sure, I'm going to agree with you on that because I have no clue. Yeah. But then, it, then I looked it up, and he he was actually right because that's why they hmm. need to be X amount wide is so in case of an emergency, airplanes can land. But because of the emergency landing uh, procedures for those things, uh, the federal government has to pay for certain parts of it, and then they'll pull it. Wow. Isn't, isn't that interesting? You see how laws perpetuate government. Right. Um, that there's how many, how many plane landings are there generally on highways? Yeah. I can't like, name <laughs> one in my life. Right. So we spend billions and billions or they spend billions and billions of our stolen money, uh, to, to make something that we really don't need. And, um, you know, it, it perpetuates the idea that we, we need them to do that for us. Right. We, we need them to make sure that Highways are big enough for planes to land on because it might happen sometime. Right. Because <laughs> at some point in our lives, that could definitely 100% happen. No, uh, probably not. Well, yeah. Planes are landing in the Hudson, but not yeah. on highways. Because could you imagine trying to shut down any part of New York, even for however long it takes for a plane to land? And... No, I can't. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't be possible. 
that's pretty much everywhere in this nation at this point. Like you couldn't do it around any major metropolitan area. Like right. maybe maybe in the flyover states you'd be able to pull that off, but yeah, nowhere where else. Even where there's more area, like people have landed planes, but generally not on highways. Like you, you have to land wherever you happen to be. So, I think too, it's it's this idea that you know, um, was it Thomas Jefferson who said, you know, those who desire safety over freedom deserve neither, deserve or something no, like that. Uh, it's, that was either him or Ben Franklin. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's Ben Franklin. Whoever it was, they were exactly right because right. freedom does not equal safety, right? And we've gotten very comfortable um, in our first world uh, opulence <laughs> where we we have decided, many people have decided that their comfort is more important than their freedom. And uh, that's unfortunate because not only is it more important than their freedom, but then they get to make decisions for us because in the system we have them, you know, the mob rules and there's more of them than people who want to be free like us. So <laughs> they get to determine that. But but real freedom isn't safe, but nothing keeps you safe now. Police can't protect you. Um, that's still your job, no matter how many police you have, no matter how much military there is. It always comes down to. How can you protect yourself? Um, we don't, you know, on the world stage, we cause a lot more problems. We, I say we, but our, the country, the United right. States causes a lot more problems than it, than it helps. That's for sure. And uh, I, I think people have just gotten this idea that governments keep them safe when governments are actually predatory upon them. It's a, it's a product of indoctrination. That's for sure. It definitely is a product. Like it's a hundred percent a product of indoctrination. In, uh, indoctrination. We uh, posted a meme. I'm not sure which one of us posted the meme. I, if I had to guess, it was uh, Mr. Murica, the Bearded Truth, that posted it. Um, <laughs> just guessing, but uh, it said it said something, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because this is just coming off the top of my head here. But um, it said something about how could uh, AFC is trying to turn us into a socialist nation, and how do we stop this? And uh, it said, conservatives, stop spending money to send your kids to schools where they teach socialism. And <laughs> we had people in our pages, you know, we're libertarian anarchists, depending on which one of us you're talking to at that moment. Okay. And we had people defending the school systems and saying mm -hmm. that it's necessary. And it's like their indoctrination camps is what they really are. Like, yeah. I, I don't care what you say. Like they, they are training the children to believe certain things. And a lot of it is that they're training the children to believe that their parents don't know what's best for them, but instead that the government Absolutely. does. So yeah, they're, they're based on the Prussian model, which was developed to, to teach factory workers. Like it's developed to teach obedience um, and uh, belief in authority. Like that's where it starts that you go here you have to go, you have to get up at odd hours and, you know, um, spend your time away from your family and listen to this person who's in the stead of your parents uh, in all these different ways. Just the actual way schools are, may, it, it perpetuates these kinds of ideas. They don't even have to say anything necessarily um, because the way the system is set up, it's set up to to teach them those things, you know, when a bell rings, this is what you do. And right. so, um, 
not only is that bad, but there's so many things about the school system that are just not good developmentally for children. Um, And everyone wants to, you know, brush that under the rug because it's convenient, really. I mean, most parents, they want to send their kids to school so they don't have to be with them. And so... (laughs) Well, <laughs> and so they and and to work, you know, it's right. not that I, they don't I, I was going. I was going to say I don't know if it's that they don't want to be with them. I just think that it's a you know, it's a great babysitter for however many yeah, hours a day. Exactly, and and I mean, if you hear summertime, all the complaining about I can't wait till these kids go back to school. Right. You know, it's it's a learned habit that we've we've not learned. Many people, sad to say, don't really parent their kids anymore. Um, I sound like an old fogey that way, but I, I'm, you know, I have two kids and I homeschool them and I, I believe in parenting in real parenting, um, even as an anarchist and, uh, you know, it, my parenting style has certainly changed. I used to definitely be an authoritarian before I became a libertarian. So my, my son, who's eight years older than my daughter was parented when he was young in a much different way than my daughter, but I still, I see myself as a legitimate authority in their life. So I, you know, I believe in natural authorities and um, not authoritarianism, which is different, right. but uh, that's, that's where you get the difference. I, I think a lot of people have decided that their, their work is much more important than raising their kids because they trust the system. They trust the system, or at least educating their kids. They they trust the system to do that. And really, even even when I sent my son, he he went to public school until fourth grade. Um, even when I sent him there, I still understood that educating my child was still my responsibility. Right. So I still needed to know what he was doing and and all those things. Um, because I I don't believe in no personal responsibility. I think that, you know, that's anarchism really is radical personal responsibility and radical freedom. Like they, they go hand in hand and you really, you, you can have one without the other. If you have radical freedom and no personal responsibility, that's where you get the Mad Max scenarios that people are so worried about. But libertarianism certainly doesn't teach that. Yeah. So many people I'll talk to them and I'll say, I'll start talking about anarchist ideas and uh, they say, well, we just care about people more than you. And I'm like, no, no, I've, or no, we just believe in people more than you. And I'm like, no, you believe in government more than me. Right. I believe in people. You exactly. believe in, you believe in the power. I believe in the people. And right. that, that's the big difference that I see, uh, in, in between definitions because they're like, oh no, I believe in people. Well, yeah, but you hate that the government does this. You hate that the government does this. You talk about how corrupt the government is and then for many of you, the answer is more government right? In, in order to oversee these people. So it's like, it, it makes, it makes no sense to me. Right. It, it doesn't. And it, it really is. Um, anarchism is the radical belief that people can run their lives better than, than the, anyone else can, especially governments um, with cookie cutter programs and, you know, violence and coercion. Right. Um, it's, it's really interesting that people would view it that way. And uh, I've, I've had people say to me so many times when they find out I'm an anarchist, you better get ready for your neighbors to come, you know, take your stuff and hurt you. And I'm like, they could do that now if they wanted to. Right. Like, that they, that makes no police? difference. The, the, I, I'm sorry. That makes no difference. The fact that there is a law 
saying you can't break into your neighbor's house, steal all their stuff and murder them right. doesn't change the fact that people can still do it. Right. Like, and yeah, laws don't stop bad people from doing bad things. They don't stop it now right. with all the government in the world. They exactly. can't stop it. Well, uh, so, you know, there are no utopias. I, I know anarchism, a lot of times it is idealistic because it's not something that's concrete in the world right now in a, in a lot of places. They're, they're, although, you know, as you and I would know that the, most people live anarchy every day of their lives, most of the day. Um, it's just people don't understand it. We've had in that school system um, and the media, we've had the, the state in control of uh, the definitions of anarchy for a long time. And so you get like, I mean, I love the Mad Max movies. Don't get me oh, yeah. wrong, but that's but what people think when they hear anarchy. They think, you know, cannibals and, you know, one group coming and taking over the less powerful group and things like that. And I'm not saying that won't you know wouldn't happen there would be conflict still but i think there'd be a lot less of it and on a much much smaller scale yeah i uh i thought the uh last mad max movie F fury road i believe was the name of that the yeah. oscar nominated yeah. mad max movie which just blows my mind uh yeah. i thought that was just such a great movie and like I, I like you had a lot of people on the right that were angry about it and they were like oh it's a social justice warrior movie because you know female power or whatever and i was <laughs> like did you did you watch that movie? That movie right. was great. I don't care that it was a bunch of women that were pregnant and Charlize Theron with a shaved head. Like, right. do it all. Still looking good. Yeah, still looking good. She, <laughs> she definitely, uh, she definitely uh, killed that look. Um, yeah. My co Spike uh, asked, without government, who would prevent the things that happen every day with government? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Me with my rocket launcher, like <laughs> you know, with my what do they call them? Tactical nukes. Tac yeah, Mc the the McNukes, um, the tactical McNukes. Yeah. That you Some, can... Someone did ask me that question the other day. Like, how would you prevent um, one group from overpowering another? And I, I, I wouldn't. Like, <laughs> I would. I, I think for one, in an anarchist sort of society, you would probably have most people armed. Um, so there'd be a lot less violence in that way. And uh, I mean, if you look at the old West, we have plenty of, of um, examples of most people being armed and there being a lot more peace than, you know, that it's been portrayed as the wild West and no right. law and lawlessness. And it really wasn't that at all. I mean, there was, there were instances of that and, and certain places where that may have been more, more true, but overall, uh, people were pretty, pretty darn safe in their towns um, and they could protect themselves very easily. Now it's, it's not the case. And um, if you're waiting on the police to protect you, well, good luck with that because, you know, no matter how good the police are, whatever, whatever you want to say, uh, they're historians. That's what police mostly are, are historians. They come and file reports. True. And, there, there's no, the Supreme Court has already ruled that there's no mandate constitutionally for them to protect us. So uh, not only do they not have to, they often don't. And even when they have the opportunity, they stand outside of schools and let children get murdered. So, you know, I, and who knows, like why? I don't know why, but those particular officers chose to do that. Um, they don't have to protect you even if they're around. So I think we need to remember that, that it's still our responsibility to protect ourselves. Absolutely. One, uh, so one of my, one of my favorite movies is Tombstone. 
Um, well, That's a great movie. Right, great movie. And there's a scene in there, and I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't remember everybody's name, but two of the characters get into a gunfight. And the sheriff walks over, and he's like, gonna need your gun, Bob. And he goes, it was a fair fight. Both of us were armed. And he goes, still, you know, town, town law. And he's like, you know me, law-abiding citizen. He just <laughs> shot somebody in the street. And he's like, law-abiding citizen, hands him his right. gun. And I was like, yeah, see, no, that's, that's fine. Right. So he's right. Fair fight. They both were armed. See, no right. problem who, with it. Who was it? Alexander Hamilton and uh, Aaron uh, Burr. Burr? Burr? Yeah. I can't remember his first name. They Aaron. A duel. So that was actually an illegal duel. Right. Exactly. It, yeah. I, if, if people are going to do that, do I want them dueling in my street? Not necessarily. But... Yeah. I would rather have to put up with two people shooting each other like idiots than I would, you know, people being disarmed. That's, that's a oh, much absolutely. more dangerous. Thing. <laughs> absolutely. Like not too far from where I live, there is a relatively good chance that there would be duels in the street often. And, uh, if, if that were to be a thing and it got out of hand, I am certain that somebody in that same neighborhood would say, we need a governmental program to clean up the bodies. And right. Then that would become a thing. Yeah. Um, so I just got a comment that's very long from Fotini Henderson. Uh, California is trying to eliminate the death penalty, which is weird because I thought that they had done that a long time ago, which yeah, is why Charles Manson is still alive. Um, right. Thinking about pedophilia and violent child crimes and those that are sitting on death row, the question, good God, you made this long. That question would even <laughs> come up if a parent took care of the issue themselves immediately. But we, I think basic, I think basically uh, she's asking what would happen in the situation. Vigilanteism. Right. I think that's I think that's where yeah. she was going with that. Um, it's like a paragraph long, so I didn't want to read till the end. Um, <laughs> sorry, Fatini. You, yeah, thank you for watching the show all the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, what what is the deal with vigilanteism? What happens in those cases? Well, I think you know. Again, to reiterate, there would be common law, and we we could have courts. Like there would be be courts. Um, they would just be not be monopolized by the state. So we wouldn't have the kind of conflicts of interest that we have right now where, you know, you have police who are state agents who are the force, violent force of arm of the law. And then the law, um, the court system, which is also state agents. And then the people who write the laws are state agents. So the state often, that's why you see, you know, cops who rape a 13 year old getting probation like that, that right. happens. Um, so there's that issue um, with private, private courts, but also I think we, a, a peaceful society would not want vigilanteism for the most part. And the reason is, is because um, it can always go the wrong way. You can think something's one way. Trials are very, very important. Um, that's why the jury system is so important. And um, to say nullification is the most important thing that you can have in a trial because you can say well not only is do I think this person's not wrong in what they've done I also think the law is wrong so you can just nullify that law um, 
So I, I think, you know, you, there would be probably instances of that, but would you really want that? I don't think so because, um, you know, we want to be sure that the people that pay any price, whatever that price might be that a society determines um, are actually guilty of the crime. And I don't know about you, but I'm not putting any pedophile or someone who actually killed someone who was actually a pedophile or whatever, um, protected their children. I'm not going to put them in prison. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything to that person. Yeah. You know, it's not that I absolutely get it. If, if, uh, Jordan Chandler's dad had hunted down Michael Jackson, I would not have cared even a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, that in that situation, I, yeah, I don't know about Michael Jackson. I wonder sometimes with, with famous people, I often wonder because, I mean, I, and I don't, I, there may be details I don't know about certain specific cases. Right. But, um, you know, he had a lot of issues for sure. And I think he had this Peter Pan complex. Definitely. But uh, he also had a lot of money and there were a lot of incentives for people to say things happened because it was weird that maybe didn't happen. I'm not saying they didn't. They, they, may have right clearly, no, I, but uh, I so. totally understand that I um yeah the uh, you know Michael Jackson's come to the forefront because of the uh ne- leaving Neverland documentary that came out and I just watched it last week so yeah anytime somebody it, yeah so. anytime somebody <laughs> says pedophile he's the one I go to right now um yeah yeah you know, it's just he's the one that I go to so that's just why that one came up yeah. and Jordan Chandler was yeah. the kid that uh accused him back in 1992 or three mm. or whatever that was um, um can, can I just add one more thing to yeah, that? No, um, there are some great videos by David Friedman on uh, private law that um, I think he's probably the foremost person dealing with what could be in the future um, in a more decentralized system. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, Milton Friedman was his father and, and he's a brilliant guy. So uh, if, if anybody's interested in learning more about those issues, David Friedman's videos on YouTube would be a great place to go. I know um, Bob Murphy has also, Robert Murphy, he's done some writing on um, what could be in, in the future. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not for the state death penalty. I really don't want the state putting anyone to death because, you know, they can lie and get away with it and they can, we've, we've seen so many times where police and other people, DAs have done things to, get some, you know, get the caller, get someone put in prison so that they don't have to deal with it anymore. Um, so I, I really don't think the state should be putting anyone to death, but I don't know what systems people would come up with. Right. Yeah. Um, to go back to a little bit earlier ago, we kind of started talking about uh, Mad Max. And yeah. one of the things that you told me, which while we were, you know, while we were talking about everything, um, you're a huge sci-fi fan. And I am. And that like <laughs> that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Cause like when you think sci-fi fan, you think somebody who looks like me, obviously. <laughs> somebody who looks like me, but uh between like the ages of sixteen and thirty-two, and uh if they're older than that, then um you know th- Hopefully they have a full-time job. Uh, like basically that's, that's basically about it for a sci-fi. Fan. So when I found out you were a sci-fi fan, I was like, interesting. And then we got into, you know, the basics like Star Wars versus Star Trek. And so, but uh, how, 
how exactly like you said that sci-fi has played a, a like a huge role in your life and yeah yeah so can can you explain that yeah well first of all i want to show you guys my shirt my cool sparkly darth vader shirt <laughs> um yeah so i i grew up very very um so my, my dad loved Star Trek and I had a very difficult relationship with my father, but it's one of the, one of the good mem- memories that I have with him. And, um, my father was very volatile and I loved Spock. And so I think because he was just very calm and reasonable and you always sort of knew what to expect. I remember running home from the bus stop when I was a little kid, like in kindergarten to see uh, reruns of the original series. Um, and then watch Carol Burnett show after. So <laughs> it was, um, you know, for me, it was very, very influential in my younger years and just the fantasy of it. I think the escape that it provided me and coming from a, a home that was very, very uh, abusive and my young life was not very good. Uh, so for me, I think that was probably the reason at first that it appealed to me so much was because of the, the escapism. I could get in a whole other, think about other things. And, um, you know, for me, that was a really good thing. Uh, as I got older, I started exploring just the genre more. I love to read. And, um, I came across Dune when I was in, that's such a good grade or something. That is such a good one. Oh yeah. Uh, Frank Herbert. I mean, that's an amazing series of books. Um, but especially the first, first one, I, 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 it was, it had to be, yeah, I was probably in fifth grade and, um, it was in my school library. I don't really know why it it was there, but so I used to read a lot of mythology and then I started reading, uh, more science fiction and, and I grew up on things like Battlestar Galactica as well. And, um, Akira, that was something I had an uncle that was how many, many years. He's probably six years older than I am. And I was very close to him and he was involved in all that stuff. He was really big into star Wars. And, um, there was a, a movie like free movies for kids during the summer. And most of those were like fantasy and sci-fi. So I like saw the dark crystal, things like that. Um, so that that I think those were the big influences for me because um of the I'm kind of an artistic person so I always liked the fantasy of it I've done makeup for stage uh at times and so that was all that stuff sort of led into my love for those things so so <laughs> it it did not take long at all after we mentioned Star Trek but uh some one of our one of our uh I know what the question's going to oh, be Oh yeah you do <laughs> Star Trek is socialist, isn't it? You know, I, uh, that wasn't the question I thought it was going to be, but um, oh, okay. I know. I was going to say, that's oh. the first one I brought up to you, though. Uh, well, first I said, are you a Trekkie, Star Wars or Star Trek? And I like them both. And then we got into the conversation about the last movie. And we're not going to get into that today because. Yeah. No, I'm not going to get into that <laughs> argument today. And, and then. um I got it. And then I said, but Star Trek socialist. And then you, you just had so many answers for that. Yeah. Well, look, I think um, Gene Roddenberry was, he's often portrayed as a leftist, but he really wasn't. He was more of a moderate. 
And he was very interested, especially at the time that he was writing Star Trek in diversity. And look, you had a, a country that was racked with racism. <laughs> like you think people think it's racist now, but like really, really racist um, at that time when black folks couldn't even go and sit in the same place as white folks. So uh, I think that was one of his, his major concerns. And he was sort of obsessed with John F. Kennedy. Um, and as we know, you know, JFK, as far as presidents go, he had some good things going. That's probably why he's dead, you know? Right, so yeah. uh, he, he wrote Kirk, that Kirk character to be a, a type uh, from John F. Kennedy um, and also he chose, which most people don't know this. So there, there is the idea of a more, especially as you go into like the next generation, a more, um, socialist type of a economic system and all that they've, they've evolved beyond money, right. but there's still this core of individual responsibility that I think libertarians can really grasp onto. But, uh, Spock, that character was, um, he was, he, I guess the guy who invented Spock was a guy named DC Fontana or maybe it's a female. I can't remember. It's DC Fontana. Um, but, uh, who was a Randian. So, you know, you have this sort of objectivism in, in Star Trek as well in this, uh, character of Spock. So, um, I think all of that is just really shows that Gene Roddenberry was interested in real diversity. I'm not talking about quotas of you need so many, you know, black people, so many white people, so many, whatever, not that kind of diversity, but in real diversity of, you know, there's, there are different kinds of people and you would have them represented there. Um, you have Chekhov and, and Sulu who was part Japanese and part Filipino. So a lot of people forget that, that he wasn't just Japanese, that there was this Filipino um, aspect to him. And that's, you know, there's a lot of conflict in, in that. So, and you had Uhura for sure, whose name means liberty or freedom. So you've got all these Chekhov named after Chekhov, uh, the writer. So there, there's a lot going on there. That's right. a lot more just the socialist aspects. And I think as you get into the next generation, for sure, you can see libertarian themes. Um, like they're all throughout the the original series as well, but especially in the um, the character of Picard, we see sometimes this very libertarian stance uh, on issues. So, and then it, it you know sort of continues on into DS Nine and Voyager, all all the others that yeah, I, don't, I don't know Enterprise. what they are. Um, yeah, but I think apex for me is is definitely my son and i argue often about which is better ds9 or next generation of course it's the next generation because he's a dumb kid he doesn't know <laughs> <laughs> he's 16 what do you know um, <laughs> yeah it's um so one i don't i i don't really have a memory of this but one of my dad's favorite stories to tell is uh he took me to see one of the star wars movies uh, when I was a kid. Um, and he, um, he said that he said it, you know, it was going to be a great bonding experience for the two of us. We're going to have a great time. We're going to watch star Wars. And apparently I was in, it. I was just like locked on the screen, just staring completely enthralled. And this is, again, this is my dad's story to this. So I don't know what movie he's talking about even a little <laughs> bit, but he said, um, toward the end of the movie, Luke Skywalker is, uh, 
fighting Darth Vader. And I was like, no, that doesn't really happen, but okay. Um, but he's like, he's fighting, well, he's fighting one of the bad guys and he uh, beats him with his lightsaber and you were, I don't know, three or four years old and you jumped up in the theater and you yelled, all right, Luke. And everybody in the theater thought that was really funny because it was coming from a four-year-old. If it came from somebody my age now, I'd slap that guy. But uh, right. <laughs> four-year-old, I'd probably let that go. Um, and he's like, it was just a really cool moment. And at that moment, I knew that you were probably going to be more of a movie guy than a sports guy. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. makes sense, Dad. But um, I'm definitely more of a, a movie person than a sports person, that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, Star Wars, I, I grew up with Star Wars. Um, I've got numerous Star Wars. Like, uh, I saw all of the um, prequels opening day. I've seen all of the postquels uh, opening day. And... Uh, I have watched the original trilogy a number of times. I can't be yeah. calculated I, by Common Core math. Um, I have the BBC radio show. Do you have the BBC I, radio show? I do. <laughs> it's quite good, actually. I've, uh, I've heard have, it's great. I've never heard it, though. Yeah, they, they got Anthony Daniels and um, a lot of the... Like Harrison Ford isn't on it, and I don't think Carrie Fisher is, but I think most of the others are the voice actors. There were quite a few that were right. the original, you know, actors. I have seen the Christmas special. Ah, uh, yes, the terrible, terrible. The ter- we're not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> How can you not talk about the first time Boba Fett shows up? Like you have to talk about it. It's yeah. part of the lore. That was the first time Boba Fett has ever made an appearance. So the Christmas special has to exist. Before yeah. that, before he shows up in that, if you just watch Empire, he's this guy that agrees to go get Han Solo. Right. Like, that's it. Like, And then in Return of the Jedi, he dies. So you need to have... It was a travesty. But uh, <laughs> you, need to, like, you need to see the Christmas special. Um, <laughs> otherwise, that character doesn't make any... Like, it's just like, okay, right. yeah, he's just a guy. Unless, I, unless you read the books and stuff, which I'm not going to do, but because right. I'm not that big. I don't read them either. Yeah, no. I, I sort of have a thing for masks and robot voices, and I think that comes from watching Transformers growing up, and <laughs> like, uh, which oh, what is it? Soundwave. The oh, one that shockwave. Talked, like a shockwave, yes. Shockwave that talked like like in the Cylons from BSG, the original BSG, like. Those voices, I, I really have the thing for robot voices. I wish I had a robot voice, but uh, and for masks, and I think that's probably. I, I remember being very disappointed when they showed Boba Fett in real life because he's not my type. <laughs> <laughs> I like the mask. <laughs> okay, so Chrissy McClellan has a very interesting question, and there's okay. oh, and a hundred percent there was only one correct answer to this question. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> who shot first? Oh, God, Han shot first that, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah, there's no question on that. <laughs> there's no question. The only people who say that uh, Greedo shot first are people who are in denial. Right. Um, yeah. No, but I mean, very, very important question because the world needs to remember Han shot first. Yeah. I don't care what George Lucas did to bastardize his creative vision because he yeah. didn't think Han should do that. No, Han did that because Han was a badass and yeah, he did and, not care. You know, I, I think sometimes as libertarians, we tend to look at everything through a libertarian lens and you know what? Not all, not everything, not every good guy is going to do everything good. So (laughs) we all make mistakes. 
Right. He al- and, you know. He also knew that if Greedo took him, Jabba right. was going to kill him. That's right. Or put so, him in carbonite, which, you know, ends up happening. Right. Self-defense. That's the way I see it. He was doing it yeah. in self-defense. I, I'm okay with it, honestly. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make him a bad person. I think that's the, I've known a lot of people who, you know, if you quote anything by Ben Franklin, my my fellow anarchists sometimes be like, that man was a terrible human and had slaves and blah, blah. I'm like, okay. So I'm not going to say that having slaves is a good thing or that it was okay even then. But not everything he said was wrong. Like you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And, and people are always a product of their times. That's not excusing it, but it's just saying like it's more understandable. And, and you know, you just can't throw everything out because somebody did or said something once that wasn't that, the best. Yeah, that, that wasn't in your Overton window of what's okay right. and what's not okay. Um, yeah, like Han shot first. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> George Lucas screwed up by changing the original trilogy and adding in all the CG. Um, that yeah, there's. Do you know the other? So my favorite movie is Blade Runner. Oh, that movie's so good. God, that movie's good. It's it's probably it's like my favorite. I I have several that are up there, very close, but. Uh, so there's the other argument that is, um, was Deckard a replicant? Yes. Yeah, that's what I say. Yes, too. 100%. That yeah, he was me too. I mean, now, you know, with the, the newer one, it sort of answers all those things. But yeah, it, it, I, he was definitely a replicant. I, Ridley Scott, honestly, is probably my favorite director of all time. Because I, I love the Aliens movies. And it, just his aesthetic for me is... Oh, yeah amazing coming out of the advertising world one of one of my favorites by him is uh the martian um because i it really shows the 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 ability of the human spirit to triumph over adversity that's just the way i look at it also the story behind it's amazing um the guy that wrote that book and i have no idea what this guy's name is uh i'm just going to preface that but he was writing each chapter and giving it away for free He'd write a chapter, like edit a it, right, and then he would for free. for free, and then it was picking up steam, and it was picking up steam. More and more people were reading it, so he sold the last chapter as an, when he made the last chapter, he sold the entire book for ninety nine cents, and it immediately hit number one on Amazon and everything else. Wow! Um, and so many people bought it that it got optioned into a script, and I just think that great way to do it, fantastic story to do it with. Um, and the movie, I just, I, I love the movie. Like I know that Matt Damon is, you know, this weird lefty, whatever, but I, I love that. He was, he was will hunting. I will always have a special place for him in my heart. Yeah. Um, And apparently he's an anarchist. I think it's him. It was either him or Mark Wahlberg. I heard give this speech and I was like, holy shit there. Excuse me. I don't know if uh, I can say that. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Like dude's an anarchist. Like clearly. Um, so it was, I, I can't, I cannot see Matt that Matt. being Matt Damon. It might, it might've been Mark Wahlberg. That, that was makes, one of them. Right. I know Tim yeah. Allen recently said that. Yeah. He said that a few years ago. I, I wonder, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe, and, and don't realize it. And then there are some people who think they are and aren't. Right. So. <laughs> Well, you go to jail for cocaine, uh, for cocaine distribution, True. you're suddenly not going to love the state all that much. So you'd hope. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. I uh, hope he is. That's it's amazing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, another, you said that you've got a couple of articles coming out. I'm completely switching gears here. Uh, you said that you have a couple of articles coming out, um, and well, you you know that I also write a lot. Uh, I've got two books out. Um, I write for a political organization that I won't mention here, and um, because they're a mainstream political organization. And, <laughs> They don't want me to mention that I write for them on this show. Yeah, uh, protect your money, honey. That's okay. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but um, in, today, in, in today's internet world, like, we look at things like, I would have preferred to make this a news, a news website, but in today's day and age, everything's got to be video. Everything's got to be short clips. Everything's got to be uh, quick. It's in your face, and it's right now. It's immediate. Nobody... Nobody, including myself, I'm not. I'm not like blaming everybody else and saying it's just me. I don't want to read stuff. Like if I can watch a video on it, I'll do that over reading an entire thing. The Martian, Game of Thrones. I'm gonna watch. You know, I'm gonna watch those as opposed to reading the really, really, really long-winded, confusing books by George R. R. Martin. Um, you know, uh, Tolkien. Uh, another great example, like so many people saw the movies, loved them, never have read the books. And I get it because I don't understand that dude's language because um, yeah. that's not English. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so in today's Internet culture, how important is it to continue to write and push that out? I think for me, for one is just as a mental exercise, it's very good. Like there's, there's something reading and writing does for your brain that nothing else does. And um, it's a way to really, you know, it's concrete. And of course you would hope that you have enough time whenever you're writing a piece that you would be able to sit down and really concentrate your thoughts into exactly what you want to say. And depending on your skill level and all that. But I, I think that, people still take ideas more seriously that are written down. You know, there's still a certain, um, I don't know, romance, if you will, that comes with being an author. Um, it's yeah. the same. Like I used to be a photographer and people think that's such a glamorous job, but it's not, it's, not. <laughs> it's it really not. not. And, but there's like this sexiness with it. Right. And I think being an author is the same thing because there's a, a huge creative element to both of those things. Um, So I think it's really important still in synthesizing your thoughts for one, but also putting it out there as a serious, uh, I don't want to say academic, but a serious contributor to real thought. Um, I think there are a lot of brilliant people doing podcasts who don't write, but I think people tend to not take podcasters very seriously as part of the contribution to thought. So um, I think writing something down is really important in just getting the, the street cred, if you will. <laughs> I get that. Yeah. Um, and anybody who's watched uh, Muddied Waters of Freedom with me and Spike, I, I, I understand why they wouldn't think that we are serious people um, <laughs> because we just aren't. Um, but uh Viewer Chrissy McClellan says reading is more absorbed than rewatching, in my opinion. If 
I think she had a stroke. I want a transcript too. Uh, if I watch, I want a transcript too. Got it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I hope you're okay. And I hope you really didn't have a stroke, Chrissy. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Like if I'm studying for something, I'm not going to watch a video. I'm going to read it because that's, yeah. that's how I intake knowledge. Um, some people may be able to do it the other way. And I'm wondering yeah. if, this modern day schooling where it seems like everything's on a screen or a tablet, or I guess they're all screens. But uh, yeah. if that's going to change that where people don't take in knowledge by actually reading anymore, but it's by watching and listening more. Yeah. I think that uh, reading to me seems a lot less passive than watching a video. I think there's a, you know, when you're watching a, at a live lecture or something, there's certainly a, an amount of participation that you are involved in by being there. But reading, I think there's this, I, you know, there's a real participation between the reader and the writer. Um, so I, because you could watch a video or whatever, and you, you, you know, that's fine. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Even like, you know, I think sometimes a lot of the nuances miss some of the best parts of of a show, you know, might, might not be there. The best parts of the story might be in the book. And, right. you know, you, you don't know that if you haven't read it or at least, you know, maybe perused it. Um, but sometimes they're pretty faithful to the ideas, especially like a lot of the classic literature. I think you can watch To Kill a Mockingbird and get a really good feel for the book and because they stayed true to it. Whereas with Game of Thrones, I don't know if that's so much the case. I haven't read it, but my friend, Alan, it's, who has done both, is not. Yeah, he says they're way different. So, <laughs> and so I'm 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 gonna be you know completely transparent here. I've ne neither read Game of Thrones nor seen Game of Thrones. You haven't watched? I haven't watched it. No, because um, I'm one of those guys that's like oh, I like every, Red Fox. Everybody likes it. Coming so. Elizabeth. <laughs> I have no idea what you're saying right now, but I remember I was watching an interview with George R. R. Martin once, and um, he said it was in the middle of season five. I don't think the last book is written yet. I don't believe I'm not. Right. No, it's right. not finished. Right. So, uh, he, he was still working on that and he was going around doing this press tour for game of Thrones and he was on Conan or somebody and Conan was asking him about, uh, the last book. And he, he's like, he's sitting there and he looks like a character out of a Tolkien novel. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, he's sitting there and he's like, you know, it's funny because the characters, the actors on the show come up to me at parties and they'll beg me not to write them out of the story because they don't want to be killed off in the books. And I look at them and say, you apparently haven't read the books. You died <laughs> off in book one. And yeah, so like he, he says they aren't anything like it. So I, I'm going to go I'm going to go with the guy that wrote the book because yeah. I feel as though he knows better than any of us. Um, yeah. And I, th I think another another one of my favorite uh, series, book series, is I, I love Stephen King, but my very favorite thing uh, Stephen King has ever written is the Dark Tower series. Right. And that movie was so bad. It was terrible. It and was I mean, so Idris Elba is a brilliant actor and a beautiful man, but even he could not save that terrible movie. <laughs> I mean, you just, there are some things that don't translate. And that's the, the thing that made the Dark Tower series so amazing. Were all of the, was all the depth of the story and all of the strangeness. And that's really hard to communicate in, a, in the form of a movie. 
So, uh, you know, what took, they, I, I can't thinking during this, like, is this three or four books they're trying to condense into one? Like, it was really terrible. Like, it was just really terribly done. I, I had a feeling that was going to be the case. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I, I, I learned to accept a long time ago that if I'm going to see a movie, I really have to divorce it from the source material. Yeah. And look at it as, as its own work of art. And that, that came about with like Blade Runner being my favorite movie because it's, of course, based on Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is quite different. And um, also Dune, another one of my favorite books. Um, a lot of people hated that movie. I happen to love the movie, <laughs> I, uh, but it's a separate work. I uh, am a huge David Lynch fan. Huge David yeah, Lynch fan. Yeah, he's brilliant. I have a Twin Peaks tattoo. Uh, <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge David Lynch fan, uh, especially of Twin Peaks. Uh, Twin Peaks is the single greatest television show of my lifetime. Um, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but uh, Dune... Dune is probably my least favorite movie he has ever made. Hmm. Bottom two. Um, <laughs> it's in my bottom two movies that he's ever made. Um, and uh, it was nothing like the book. But the new, the new yeah. one that's coming out with Jason Momoa, like the cast that they like, I can't yeah. remember. The cast that they have for this new Dune movie looks just fantastic. Yeah. Like, I am super excited about this movie coming out. Right. We'll see if they keep the themes in it that you know, and don't try to do the social justice warrioring thing, thing. But I, I, you know, Children of Dune, which was a sci-fi miniseries that they did, was a was amazing. It was really great, um, and they they made it a miniseries because there's more to tell. And I think now, you know, TV has a lot more respect than maybe when we were little. Uh, yes. That you know, movie stars didn't do television. No. You went one way, not the other. So if you were a movie star that was now doing television, you had really come down. Which now it's not that way. So um, I th I think people are more. You know, they'll they'll give a a, a book of as mini series as a chance to sort of let it breathe and and really get the story out there. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to that movie. I hope it's really good. And, and either way, it'll probably be entertaining. I mean, now it's the Dark Tower was just a bad movie all the way around. I would have liked it if it were just better, but it wasn't. Right. Even if it wasn't really the Dark Tower, it was just wasn't any good. So I think if they make a decent enough movie, it'll be enjoyable. Um, but I, you know, I I think that you still look at all these movies that are being made that come from books. Books are where you really can let the ideas come from, you know, anything. You can pull from anything, especially in science fiction. I think that um, I've heard it said that it's the most libertarian of the genres. And I think science fiction and fantasy really are because you can, like, you think about, um, we were talking about Star Trek earlier, the, uh, in the original series, um, he wrote so many of those episodes directly from what was going on in his day and time and Roddenberry's day and time, like the episode with the people that are half black and half white and the conflict that, that they have. And that was brilliant. And it was so directly to that time. Um, so I, I think that you can, you can do a lot of really great things with, a lot of commentary that's entertaining. That's not quite on the nose, but that really shapes people's ideas. 
Um, you look at like Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein and uh, you know, there's, there's all these great books that teach you a lot. Tolkien, I mean, like the Lord of the Rings is this great epic, you know, and, and there's so many great values in it. Um, and he didn't preach to you. He told you a story, right. which is the basic human, wonderful thing that it's a wonderful device that we have as humans to, to instill values in people, it's entertain them, but teach them something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he wrote Gollum and Gollum was like the single greatest character ever written. Yeah. Amazing. And you know, you think about it, it really goes back to like the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, a book that I love is Dante's Inferno and the, the whole divine comedy is really good, but the Inferno is my, I thought if they make this into a movie, this will be epic. Right. Um, so I, you know, those, those kinds of things, they're all really the roots of science fiction. They're, they're great epic voyages and fantastical. And, you know, I loved Clash of the Titans, that terrible movie when I was a kid, but I still will watch it. If it's, if I had time for TV, that movie is just awful. Uh, Harry Hamlin. That's the, yeah. yeah Harry I think that's Hamlin. the guy's name that plays the, yeah, that movie is so bad. It is. That movie is so but, bad. You know, it's great. It's yeah, it's when, one of those. Um yeah, I, I used to I, I spent most of my formidable years uh watching <laughs> watching absolutely terrible movies. Um because yeah. why not? Um but yeah. Um like whenever whenever the source material is a book, I'm typically and I've read the book, I'm typically let down. Then when I've yes. seen the movie and I'm like, oh, I need to read that book. And then I watch the book or watch the book. I read the book. I'm like, well, now I'm let down because you could have put all of this into this movie. Yeah. Um, one of the books that I have sitting right there uh, is Train Spotting, which is one of my all time favorite movies, which probably a great movie, a great movie, uh, which probably explains why I am a recovering drug addict. Uh, but <laughs> You're not a recovering Scottish person, are you? I'm not a recovering <laughs> Scottish person. I wouldn't understand what any of them were saying. Um, <laughs> I got to watch Train Spotting with uh, subtitles, but uh, yeah. So, like, I'm reading. I'm reading this book, and it's written in Scottish dialect, which makes it mm -hmm. a very difficult read. Uh, but the book is so good, and it's from so many different points of view that you actually see what sick boy's thinking in this one scene. And you actually see what Renton's thinking in mm -hmm. this one thing. Uh, like it is yeah. fantastic. And one of my uh, really good friends for Christmas, she got me the prequel and the sequel to train spotting. So I'm very, cool. yeah, I'm very excited to, uh, to, to get into those, but I'm not yeah. sure if I'm ready. Cause literally it, first time I opened it, I opened it and I thought that I got dyslexia. Because, <laughs> because it's not written in regular English. It's yeah. part parts of it are, but some parts aren't. The parts where Renton is talking, which is Ewan McGregor's character for anybody who doesn't know, uh, the parts where he's talking, it's written and spelled the way a Scottish person would say these words. Uh, right. So I looked at it and I was like, "What is happening?" And then I started saying everything out loud and I realized that he was just phonetically spelling the words the way in a Scottish accent, which is, I mean, that taught me so much about Scottish yeah. language uh, or the <laughs> Scottish dialect. And uh, at the end, he's got an appendix that has definitions of words you may not know. 
And mm -hmm. I found that after, when I was really close to the end of the book and I had been Googling every word. Um, <laughs> You're like, oh, great. This would have been handy. Yeah, <laughs> I would have loved to have known that this was a thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, great, great, I think book, great book by uh, Irvine Welsh. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really important, though, is that books can give you the internal dialogue that you can't get on a movie right. of characters. And that can be really important. Um, what's that movie? Twelve Angry Men. Remember that play? Yeah. With uh, uh, the um, movie had um, Jack Lemmon. The original yeah, movie, uh, 1963, I think, had Jack Lemmon. And uh, I can't remember who else. I just remember Jack Lemmon. The same, I think the same guy from To Kill a Mockingbird. I can't think oh, of the Gregory name. Oh, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. I think yeah. that he was in that too. I, I don't remember, but I think there's, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I think there's a lot of internal dialogue right. in that book. Which, um, which there would have I, to be. Yeah. And it, if I, it's been a long, long time since I've seen that movie. But uh, I believe that they tried to do that in the movie as well. And that used to be more of a device that was used in, I think, the 50s, 60s, maybe, where they would actually have like a voice that right, was telling right. you what the internal. But it's sort of corny, right? So even in these great movies. Um, so I, I think that's something that you lose when something is from from the written work into uh, a movie that you sometimes lose that sort of internal dialogue and the motivations and of what the character is trying to say and why they're doing what they're doing. Right. Um, you may not always have time for that in a movie. So, so not everything can be dances with wolves, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. That movie's great. Um, it is great. I liked it so much better than when they remade it as Avatar. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, so years ago, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a scriptwriter. I was going to move out to L.A., and I was going to write scripts, and I was going to become famous, and I was going to, you know, like win an Oscar one day for one of my scripts. Um, still could happen. Who knows? But so I took, a screen, I took a screenwriting class, and my teacher said it is, a, it is a standard idea that nobody, that you do not use voiceovers. It is lazy writing. Because if the director cannot, if the director and the actor cannot portray what that person is thinking and feeling just in their face, they shouldn't like, that's when you start using the voiceovers. And it's because you need to explain further because you don't have a good enough director or writer or actor. Mm. And I was like, well, crap, there goes my script that I just wrote. <laughs> Cause like. I, I had breaking the fourth walls. I had, uh, right. I, I had, uh, voiceovers. I had, like, I had a bunch of stuff in there. Right. Um, I think, you know, rules are made to be broken, but it, it's true though. I, I think you have to know that's the difference between when it's, when it's done well and when it's not is that you have to know what the rules are and know how to follow them order in order to break them. Right. And uh, in photography, I learned that, that there are, you know, there's certain composition rules in all of art. And you can break those. You can't break them all at the same time, but you can break them. You have to know when, though. You have to know, you have to, to train yourself to, to know what's good and when something is good, even though it breaks a rule. But you have to train yourself in the rule first, generally. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> so I had to rewrite the entire script for him, and I had like three days, and I was like, I got this. <laughs> 
Nailed it, though. Nailed it. Got an A on it. Cool. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, before, oh, man, there was something I was going to say before that, and I totally forgot what that was. It had to do with something we were talking about earlier. And now, oh, which version of Blade Runner is your favorite? You mean between the original first one and the prequel or the sequel? No, no. So, okay. So you've got the original theatrical version. Right. You've got the studio director's cut and then you've got the actual director's cut. Uh, It's been a long time since I've seen the studio cut. That's not my favorite. I can tell you that. I think the director's cut is my favorite. The Ridley Scott official. Yeah, I think so. That's the unicorn one, right? Yes. The unicorn or origami one? I forget. It's been a long time. I have, I forget which one I have downstairs. I think I have the director's cut and I think that it's the unicorn one. Yeah. But I'm not sure. But that makes it make sense, right? That ties like the, Edward James almost is so fantastic He's in that so movie. He's his not got a very big part, but man, that e- the even, little origami things, it's just so brilliant. And I'm just, I'm, I'm going to point this out. I do a lot of origami, like a lot. If if anybody comes to my house, there's definitely going to be cranes and fishes everywhere. That's cool. <laughs> uh, it's what like I'll be sitting there watching TV, just folding origami and tossing it. Like mm-hmm. I'll do it, at, you know, I'll do it when I'm at a kava bar or if I'm at a restaurant. I'll like fold something into uh, an origami crane and I just leave it for the waitress because I don't need it because I've got literally hundreds. Right. Um, but. Uh, I was like, I wanted, I, I started learning so I could learn how to make the origami unicorn from Blade Runner. That's so cool. And I have not been able to find anybody that can tell me how to make it without three separate pieces of paper. Oh. Yeah. I wouldn't know. I, well, I, right. But I, I wasn't expecting you to. I, if you did, I've been like, great. Let's whip out some paper. Let's do this. Um, but, um, yeah, nobody's been able to say how to do it. And I, that made me so sad because I really wanted that to be one piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, I think origami is amazing. I um, used to do a lot with my son. He was really into it for a while. And uh, I mean, there's some amazing, I just watch videos on YouTube sometime of people making just these amazing things out of paper. And uh, I, I I did it in high school. We had projects that we do a little bit with them uh, with it. And I've always been really fascinated with Japanese culture ever since I was like five years old. I snuck up at night to watch this miniseries my mom was watching called Shogun, which is also a book that was turned into a miniseries. I believe it was a movie too. I'm sorry? I think it was a movie too. By Kurosawa. Uh. It might have been. The guy who wrote the book was English, I think, or at least spoke English. I, yeah. I don't think he was Japanese. Um, so he was British or American. I think he was British. But uh, so this was a miniseries based on his his book um, about the opening up of Japan, as they called it, which was really just the violent, you know, you've got to right. do this or we're going to keep blocking your port. But <laughs> um, it's it was a brilliant movie. But I've I've been sort of obsessed with Japanese things ever since then. And I think it's, it's really interesting because the Japanese have a, an idea that I really like. And that's that the final product is not the only important thing that the final product is great, but each step of the way is supposed to be like, they're trying to perfect the process as well as the end product. I just think that's a really interesting 
way to look at things. Um, they also have this, I, I forget the word for it, kintsugi. They call it uh, where it's mending. Like if you break a, a vase or something, they don't just throw it out. They'll mend it with like a precious metal. Um, and oh, yeah, they use like beautiful. gold or, yeah, they use like gold or silver or something. And yeah, yeah I've seen this. Copper, different things they'll use and, and, you know, maybe put gold leaf in there or whatever. But it's, um, it's just the idea that you don't throw something away because it's broken, that that that, that experience makes it more valuable. And I, I think that's sort of a beautiful thing and, and something maybe in the West we don't value things quite as much that, uh, you know, people are disposable and so are things and to a lot of people in the West, unfortunately, but the, the, <laughs> the, the original upcyclers. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> the original upcyclers. Um, and most of the stuff that I've seen that's been upcycled, I'm like, that looks awful. Why did you do that? You broke a glass, throw yeah. it away. Um, but uh, we we're actually a little bit over time, but this has been a fan, okay. this has been a fantastic conversation. I I would love to have you on anytime that you want to come on. Um, cool, yeah, I'd love to come back. Excellent. Uh, pitch anything that you want to pitch, if you have anything you want to pitch. Okay, sure. Yeah, I've been so. I've, speaking of writing, um, I've I've worked on a couple articles. They're not even close to being ready yet. Uh, but I'm doing a writing, um, thing every day it's a subscription service called freedom 365 uh you can go to sounds like liberty.com slash 365 i think if you go to sounds like liberty you can find it um which is my friend nick pacone's podcast and so we're doing this uh, along with um luke tatum from the P- peace and prosperity podcast yes I, I hope i didn't get that wrong no it's but, peace, uh, peace and we, prosperity so we've been writing yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's, so. I think it's peace and prosperity. Yeah. Um, so we do these music summaries uh, from a libertarian perspective. So songs that sort of have a, a liberty theme or um, there have been a couple that I thought were completely the opposite. And, and so we write about that and our, our different perspectives on it um, to sort of give people a, a, a an artistic entertaining way to talk to their friends about libertarian principles. So maybe things that they haven't considered before. And there's a community that goes with that. So that's something I'm doing that um, I, I really am enjoying because it's, it's making me write every day. And that's one of the things my friend, Anthony Samaroff, who is a great writer had said is that you need to write every day. Like that's what you need yeah. to be doing. So this sort of forces me to do that. And I can already tell my, you know, my, my writing, I'm, I got my thesaurus out every day. Like I'm looking on the thesaurus, the thesaurus, thesaurus. (laughs) you know, choose different words. And yeah. So, um, I I think that's a, that's one thing that I'm, I'm kind of proud to be doing right now because I, it's, it's a real benefit to me to get those out there, to have to think about things in a different way and, I've had a lot of fun doing it. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, writing, writing is my therapy. Like whenever I'm in my head a lot, I'll sit at a keyboard. What I write sometimes maybe crap, but it's getting it out. And it, and right, yeah. It every day. Like that stream of consciousness. Exactly. I, yeah. Um, I used to write bad poetry when I was in high school. 
really bad poetry. <laughs> I, I I may have a really bad poetry book coming out soon, um, <laughs> because somebody rec- some <laughs> my editor found a poetry site of mine, and uh, she was like. She was reading it and she goes, you should publish these and sell them. And I was like, I should not because (laughs) those are terrible. And she says, no, this will sell really well. And I was like, all right, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) If you want to put it here, I'll put them together. You edit it. She goes, okay. So I may have one of those coming out, but I have another. (laughs) There's another book that's in the uh, queue before that one. So. Uh, that cool. one I basically ripped off from Train Spotting, though, um, <laughs> because I really like that movie. And this one is a, oh. a lot about what I did when I was a drug addict. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all things, you know, all stories basically are recycled, right? Just from our per- own per- point of view in our time. So. There's, a, there's only five <laughs> different stories in the world, so um, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, again, thank you so much. If you want to hang out for a little bit so we can uh, talk a little bit more uh, afterwards, remember Post Secret. Yes, I remember Post Secret. Um, Old website where people would post secrets and anonymously. They were awful. Um, Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the face you should be making on that one. Um, (laughs) That was terrifying. You would go on it being like, please, not today. Um. (laughs) But yeah, to everybody else, tune in tomorrow night at either 7 or 8 Eastern for uh, Mr. America, the Bearded Truth, who is closing out our week. Then we are taking two days off uh, before Mr. America, the Bearded Truth, comes back to open up next week. Next Tuesday is a very special episode of the Muddied Waters of Freedom, as I have now, as I have now completed well, on Tuesday, I will have then completed another cycle around the sun, which means that we're supposed to celebrate or something, and I don't really care. <laughs> but um, after that, uh, on Wednesday, we've got uh, My Fellow Americans with Spike, and then right back here next Thursday for the next episode of The Writer's Block. Great guest next week. Not going to spoil it for you right now, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that show. Uh have yourselves a great week and make sure you tune in to Mr. America tomorrow night and we will see you next week. I, I am, I am swinging from a seven story window, throwing parties in a 10 by seven cell. It's astounding the legs I'll go to convince the whole damn world.
Hey! 